Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the generic but still very costly podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 25th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Excellent, Frank. And just a quick reminder before we start that, uh, dear listener, it only takes you a moment to go to iTunes and rate this show. Uh, If you help us claw our way up the charts, other listeners will find this fine piece of broadcasting. Even more importantly, exaggerated positive reviews will help Frank and I deal with our self-esteem issues. (laughs) This week on Twill, we greet David Barton-Smith. He is Emeritus Professor at Temple University, an adjunct professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management in the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University. He's the author of seven books and innumerable journal articles. He's part of that health policy firmament and particularly <laughs> lauded for his work on health disparities do not laugh it is true sir welcome david thank you it's a pleasure to be here well we just got a couple of little things to get off our desks frank before we uh, start our conversation with david um, i'm going to start with more of a tease than any substantive contribution i think if you sort of look at what health heads are going to be talking about during the next year at least if the presidential polls hold steady i think uh, Macros, MIPS, and APMs, so ably covered by Frank on the second uh, back-to-school special. (laughs) And Section 1557 and the new non-discrimination regulations. They're going to be the the ones that are going to be high on the list. So with regard to the latter, Tim Jost already has news of the first complaint filed. Uh, cribbing now from his piece in Health Affairs, 1557, of course, applies various anti-discrimination laws to entities receiving assistance under the ACA. Uh, they include Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972 with its uh, uh, prohibitions on discrimination based on sex and now, of course, also on gender. So on August 23rd of this year, a Catholic hospital system, um, a Christian medical association, and five states have already filed a lawsuit challenging the HHS 1557 regs. Um, uh, The complaint is, as Tim notes, a mere 79 pages with 20 causes of action, uh, alleging uh, that uh, the regulation violates the Federal Administrative uh, Procedures Act, various constitutional and statutory provisions with regard to religious liberty, and so on and so forth. So it looks like uh, even before the courts have finally uh, dealt with uh, Zubik, uh, we have a we have a sort of Zubik type two already blossoming in the lower courts. Are you excited about that, Frank? <laughs> You know, I've been handling a uh, onslaught of, of students who need advice on notes, and Zubik keeps coming up, and I keep saying, I think that one, the Supreme Court doesn't really want to deal with it, and it's going to be dealt with in a certain uh, negotiated way. And uh, <laughs> so I don't know if there'll be that much. But now your your new case that you've brought up, Nick, has led me to think that uh, maybe there is more and more law to be made uh, in this area. Um, so in terms of my little contribution to the, uh, the first of my two is a case, uh, is a uh, description of a controversy in Medium, which is by Kay McGowan. And she's writing about, uh, a, an individual, Mary Moe and some other individuals who have pacemakers, implantable devices. And their demand is that they want to understand the code that is inside these devices because some of them are security experts, other the, others of them have uh, security concerns. 
and they want to be able to check out to see is the code vulnerable or not. And the article concludes with a comparison between the potential insecurity of code in these medical devices and the Volkswagen emissions scandal, and essentially uh, makes the case that a DMCA exemption, uh, which has been granted to some of these individuals, to take a look at or to inspect the code in the devices, that that should be extended and that there should be more general ability of individuals to access and to understand, interpret the code in their devices. And I think this is such an interesting article because, on the one hand, I am completely in favor of the rights of patients to access uh, this type of uh, this code. Um, I think it's really critical and might even be construed as a version of the types of rights that are afforded under high-tech and HIPAA to have access to records. On the other hand, I do worry a bit about, um, you know, the the potential of having these types of things out in the public domain to be hacked, to be played with by various people of potentially uh, nefarious intent. And so uh, the question of security and how we solve that question is an ongoing one in healthcare. It looks like that the security community is pushing for more uh, public access to the code on medical devices. See, what what I started thinking about when I read that piece was sort of the FCC, FCC and trying to get more choice in cable boxes and stuff like that. So I was thinking about, would there be the opportunity to sort of run different code on uh, these devices? Devices. And then, of course, my silly little mind goes off in a whirlwind, and I'm thinking about uh, apps controlling it, and whether whether there'll be in-app purchases um, so that you can you can run faster or something, where you you can you can make your your little pacemaker go better or something like that. But I think your more serious analysis is where we should be going on this. <laughs> no, I think that's incredibly important, Nick. I think that these sorts of uh, it's you've connected it really nicely to the biohacking debate that's going on right now that I, I did not immediately connect it to. And I think that those two actually are intimately connected and should be part of the debate right now. My last part, speaking of digitized, technified, and complexified, is um, an article in the New York Times uh, by Constant Gutsky on patients, advocates who help navigate medical care. And there is now actually a new profession, professional health advocates, who help patients to find doctors, to negotiate medical payments with hospitals, and to push insurance companies to cover claims. And this, I think, is such a fascinating issue, especially for anyone who has covered the history of the professions and the ongoing battles over jurisdiction between, say, lawyers and accountants, or between doctors and nurses, or, say, presently, say, how much can a respiratory therapist do? How much do other sort of health personnel do? And the expansion, apparently there are now 650 professional health advocates who are part of the, um, that's the, the general number in the profession. And it does look like this is a group that's going to have some staying power as healthcare gets more complex. Perhaps, um, you know, as the growth of narrow networks happens, yet another task for the professional health advocate might be to try to figure, find out that combination of both in-network hospital and in-network doctor and to figure out what I think is quite an imponderable problem of how you could get both of those folks to pre-commit to being the treatment uh, for the patient. So I do think that this is just yet another example of how 
both the American healthcare system seems to be getting so complex that now we have this sort of like tertiary profession on top of it. We had sort of doctors and nurses, then we had coders to sort of interpret what's going on there, insurance companies, and now we have the professional health advocates who are going to be helping people navigate the rest of the complexity. Um, but I guess it also shows that where there's a market, there is some uh, way of using extraordinary means to solve the problem. And I do emphasize extraordinary. The billing apparently for the advocates is about $150 to $600 an hour uh, for their services. So not exactly a, a method of, of reducing costs then. <laughs> no. <laughs> it uh, does bring to mind uh, another tertiary profession, the the rise of the scribe uh, in, in trying to sort of patch the disaster of electronic medical record interfaces so that doctors can get on with their work. And I guess it also brought to mind, Frank, as you were talking, the uh, uh, the discussion uh, back in the heyday of consumer-directed healthcare as to what the role of the provider would be as an infomediary, as a navigator, to uh, try and uh, uh, help patients uh, through the complexity of uh, the growing complexity of healthcare. Oh yes, nice connections there, and of course the the ACA navigators, right? That was supposed to be a whole new profession as well. You know, who would help you navigate the plans, um, just purely on the insurance side. So. Yeah, I think that this is raising a number of very difficult questions for the healthcare, or, or is it an indication of a healthcare system's ability to adapt, or is this a symptom of some fundamental pathology that we keep seem to adding these um, uh, tertiary professions? Uh, I think with the scribes, that is such a great example because that's one where – you know, if you were to ask experts on the automation of work, what would be the aspect of the work that would be most automated? You know, you'd think it would be about something like dictation software. Um, but as we all know, anyone who's used dictation software, there's all sorts of errors and healthcare is, has relatively low tolerance for errors. Uh, and so it's yet another example of how hard it is to figure out which jobs will be automated and where use of big data might lead to whole new professions entirely. And does raise the question of when we'll have the first robot podcast host. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so on to the uh, the the main course. Uh, our guest is David Barton Smith, as I mentioned, and he's the author of a new Vanderbilt University Press book called "The Power to Heal: Civil Rights, Medicare, and the Struggle to Transform America's Healthcare System." David, this is a truly excellent piece of work. I enjoyed literally every page, and I learned so much. Oh, thank you! Uh, it's 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 a pleasure to hear uh, such praise from lawyers. <laughs> Oh, we, we praise all the time if, 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 if we're being paid. <laughs> so uh, clearly here you present for us a civil rights frame for public health care. And uh, uh, the book uh, starts to a large extent uh, contrasting the, uh, the accidental, as I sometimes call it, the haphazard uh, way that our healthcare system uh, has developed in this country. Um, and you contrast the sort of civil rights frame, I think, with the, the solidarity principles that perhaps were in evidence around the same time in other industrialized, industrialized countries after the Second World War. Um, is that a good place to start with uh, your thesis? Uh, you can start almost anywhere. <laughs> but uh, yes, that's a good place to start. I, I, I think one of the major points that I, I, I try to drive home is the entire structure 
of the health system as we uh, now deal with it was formed in uh, what one would describe as a Jim Crow era uh, between the Plessy uh, versus Ferguson decision and the Brown decision. Uh, and we're still struggling with that legacy uh, uh, in terms of a private financing system, in terms of private voluntary hospitals. There, there are all kinds of bits and pieces that were invented and created during that time that are uh, make, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the complexity that we face now even more complex. So I suppose there's uh, there's some irony here, isn't there? Um, I mean, the the conventional history of Medicare, for example, is that uh, it was designed because of the growing um, uh, needs of elderly white persons. Um, and now you paint this picture and give us this evidence of how uh, Medicare actually uh, uh, starts a, a, a sort of more, far more general uh, desegregation uh, process. Um, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I, I, I think one of the uh, things that's got lost uh, in uh, in the story of, uh, of Medicare was that the only organized medical groups that supported its passage were the black was the Black Medical Association, National Medical Association. And the only ones, indeed, even invented, uh, to, uh, even invited to the uh, uh, signing ceremony with Johnson were representatives from the National Medical Association, even uh, members of the AMA, even members of the American Hospital Association, the Blue Cross uh, plans, the private insurance plans were uh, deliberately excluded because uh, they were perceived as opponents of uh, the passage of that legislation. Uh, so, so the Black Medical Association, the National Medical Association, played a key role in advocating for it. And at one time, number of times, there were confrontations between uh, the American Medical so Association that wanted to to have a united front of doctors and the National Medical Association demanding to know why uh, they were the only medical association that supported uh, the passage of the Medicare bill. And their answer was uh, that um, yes, and uh, Columbus uh, thought the world was around and he turned out to be right. He, he turned out to be right. Uh, there's a, a piece of the story that's really related to uh, the civil rights struggle. And Medicare was very uh, closely watched uh, by the civil rights groups as the next uh, step in forcing uh, desegregation uh, of both hospitals, but uh, desegregation in general. So I think that, that um, putting the National Medical Association at the center of the narrative is one of many uh, great uh, services of, of your work, David. And I just wanted to ask a bit of a question or a question about um, one of the constructs or theoretical models that you introduce in the work, uh, stealth capture. 
And uh, <laughs> I think this idea of stealth capture is such an interesting one because, you know, we're used to capture being a relatively negative thing. You know, we think of regulatory capture as sort of the nadir of the regulatory state's inefficacy or sabotaging. But I think you sort of bring about this idea, you know, looking at, say, the work of Derek Bell or James Gardner or others of stealth capture. And could you explain that for the listeners? It, it, it seems to be, and I, and I, I would welcome uh, uh, contradictions, uh, the only time uh, when uh, regulatory capture was um, uh, the result of a a, a real social movement uh, to uh, transform uh, an industry rather than an industry trying to protect itself uh, from regulation. The irony is that because the um, Congress, particularly Southern Congress, in their infinite wisdom, chose not to provide staffing for regulation uh, of Title VI, that that uh, that staffing came uh, from volunteers uh, uh, from the civil rights movement, uh, and they eventually essentially took it over. The training of the inspectors uh, was done by SNCC and CORE and uh, Southern Christian Leadership Council and, uh, uh, and the NAACP. It was not done by uh, uh, medical professionals, hospital professionals, or, or anybody else. So they were basically training people to operate as members of a social, social movement. Uh, and uh, the volunteers uh, were recruited uh, from HEW, but they were not not typical HEW bureaucrats. These were people that, but for the most part, were already involved as activists in the civil rights movement and said, thank God I've got a chance to do, do this as a part of my day job. Uh, and so they happily volunteered in spite of the risk in spite of the fact that would probably be many of them would be working 18 hours a day uh, and uh, uh, facing all kinds of retaliation, having uh, the windows of their cars shot out by Klansmen, uh, having um, crosses burned on their front lawns and all of that kind of stuff. All the typical stuff you read about in terms of civil rights activism was actually uh, um, uh, uh, the same kinds of experience that these uh, volunteer bureaucrats face in terms of going out uh, to inspect hospitals, particularly in some uh, of the more recalcitrant southern states. Thinking of the inspectors and the uh, harassment and intimidation that you noted when they went out, let's focus, however, a little bit more on what was happening perhaps in, in D.C. at that time. Um, I, I don't know how advanced you are in selling the film rights to this book, David, but if I was writing the screenplay for this, the, the, the part I think I'd be um, uh, uh, pushing for the movie is the whole Title VI Medicare issue, uh, the Gardner Memo, the Office of Equal Health Opportunity, and the really, as you put it, the high-stakes gamble that was taking place in the Johnson administration as to whether there would be any Medicare hospitals in the South after this went round. Can you, can you expand on that somewhat for us? Well, it's, 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 it's interesting because I, I've just uh, re reviewed the uh, rough cut 
of the documentary that we hope to have air on PBS uh, stations next year. And you're quite right, that that is what we're very much trying to do in terms of uh, the uh, trying to present the real intense and really uh, unheralded drama that took place in relation uh, to this whole effort and the high risks uh, that, uh, that the Johnson administration perhaps partially inadvertently uh, took on in terms of taking on this battle. Yet in a, a, a funny sort of way, there, there are counter stories to that that you introduce us to. For example, uh, what happened or rather what didn't happen at Grady Memorial in Atlanta, which I think is a great story. Oh yes, yes, and and that that story was reproduced in many other places as well. Uh, see, one of the things that made uh, the Feds a little bit more hopeful about uh, what was going to happen uh, when they uh, uh, forced uh, the desegregation of the hospitals in the South was what had already begun to happen in terms of the medical school uh, teaching hospitals that had uh, basically um, the feds didn't quite have the courage to tell them that they weren't going to give them money, but they uh, uh, delegated that job to the peer review teams uh, uh, for uh, grants from NIH. And many of the peer team reviewers basically told uh, these uh, medical school hospitals that unless they were integrated, they weren't going to get any funding. And it wasn't the feds that were doing it, it was their peers that were doing it to them. And so as a result of that, they quietly, without telling anybody, particularly their, uh, their, their, their state legislators, uh, proceeded to quietly integrate uh, uh, their institutions. Uh, and that took place in 1964-65, uh, just before Medicare began. Uh, in, in Grady Memorial Hospital, you have this classic kind of um, irony. Here was a hospital that was built with twin towers, identical twin towers. Uh, there was a black one and a white one. Uh, and the only thing that was really integrated was the sewage system. Uh, but the idea was that this was going to be a iron-proof defense of separate but equal. But clearly, you couldn't claim it was unequal if uh, the uh, footprint and the services in both sides of this uh, twin tower were identical. Uh, and ironically, uh, Grady Hospital uh, construction was completed in 1954, uh, just as the Brown decision was coming down. And they struggled uh, for about eight or nine years uh, to block uh, uh, its state desegregation. Um, and then finally, uh, and I interviewed the administrator, and he said that he, he was terrified for a week before they did this, and he didn't tell anybody. And then he got the people together on the night shift and said, okay, tonight we're going to uh, integrate the hospital, and you need, to go to, uh, you need to get your staff to go to each room and tell the patients that uh, they're being relocated. Uh, and so they quietly went 
through the night relocating everybody. So in the morning, everybody in that institution, both, both Twin Towers, were racially integrated. Uh, the administrator and some of the staff were convinced that uh, Atlanta would be again in flames as a result of this. Uh, but um, when the breakfast trays were distributed, uh, there was not a single uh, a protest, and uh, it was quietly integrated without any of the kind of protests and violence and and uh, disruptions that uh, uh, took place in public accommodations and other uh, in schools and and so forth. Uh, it was managed perfectly. And a similar thing happened during uh, the process of integrating the hospitals in the South uh, for Medicare. You had a private board that was not um, uh, did not have to respond to local political pressure. Uh, that had a fiduciary responsibility for the survival of that particular institution. And they came to a very, uh, the very obvious business decision that uh, they were only going to be able uh, to uh, survive in the long run uh, if uh, they complied uh, with Title VI and, uh, and got the Medicare money. Uh, so it was all done very quietly. In many cases, the hospitals never even released a news release of what they were doing. They just did it. Uh, and people, uh, surprisingly enough, uh, the general public, unlike m many politicians then and today, had uh, really little pro problems with it. Uh, it. It went off typically very smoothly and quietly. Uh, there's for our, 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 our documentary, we had trouble finding any footage of a organized protest uh, uh, that took place in terms of the desegregation uh, of, of hospitals. Uh, it was done all, almost all, uh, quietly and outside of the, uh, of the public eye. I mean, it raises such fascinating questions, uh, David, about sort of the comparative history of desegregation of institutions, right? Because as, as you just noted, you know, there was uh, there's enormous violence in public accommodations, the schools, other areas of the South, uh, and yet this went off without a hitch. But I think one of the ways in which your book really helps explain that difference is you get into the idea of this secret army of local hospital workers and civil rights activists who gathered intelligence about hospitals, and then simultaneously that Johnson and the White House staff had a war board map of potential trouble spots and actually had a plan to bring out the National Guard and military co uh, helicopters to bring people to um, VA hospitals if the uh, other hospitals refused to desegregate and somehow were shut down or something, something like that occurred. And could you describe that sort of interagency cooperation? Because that is just a fascinating, it's, it's amazing to sort of think that they were almost on a war fitting within the United States because they were so worried about the backlash. Uh, the, the last month, uh, I think Lyndon Johnson and many of his staff uh, didn't get much sleep. Uh, they realized that um, uh, this was going forward, that uh, only about half the hospitals in some southern states had uh, 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 successfully complied. 
uh, they were waiting for George Wallace to organize, they were expecting George Wallace to organize some kind of protest and organize it with other Southern governors. Uh, and so they could conceive of this whole thing uh, blowing up uh, and becoming uh, just an absolute uh, uh, public relations and civil rights disaster. Uh, so they, they moved very, very, very quickly. The fear, the terror was that somebody would uh, present themselves to a hospital and be refused admission and die. Uh, and that was something that, if that happened, all hell was going to break loose. Uh, from the civil rights groups um, and uh, uh, from other people as well. And the, the, the whole kind of uh, professional quiet uh, uh, cover uh, that all of this effort had been uh, had, had developed would fall by the wayside and we, we, it would result in a, a, a really bloody mess but that didn't happen and as the countdown went in the last few days about 98% of the beds in the country had been had complied with Medicare and uh, the office uh, responsible for uh, certifying compliance had to deal with only maybe a couple hundred uh, difficult cases uh, most of which were resolved relatively quickly uh, in the next uh, uh, three to six months. Hospitals discovered that uh, without the Medicare and Medicaid funds, uh, their occupancies uh, would dro uh, dropped. Um, their um, um, ability to be financially viable became non-existent, and most of them came around very quickly. Well, I think that is just such a terrific historical account, David. And I know that you know. Just to, I'll make this sort of legal point um, for the audience, and you know, just be a bit of a thought experiment and. I'd love to hear as well sort of your thoughts about the general state of, say, state-federal relations in healthcare. But one thing I wonder about is, you know, now that we have um, the decision by the Supreme Court in NFIB versus Sibelius that expressed extreme concern about the federal government coercing states into the Medicaid expansion. One, ha <laughs> one has to wonder if exactly what it took, you know, to uh, make sure that the hospitals were integrated, that that, if one wonders if that would have raised alarm bells in, say, a Justice Roberts of 1964, if a Supreme Court with such great concern about sort of states being coerced, if that might have happened. I, I don't know if, uh, if, if that is... A potential misreading of, of current precedent or if you see sort of echoes of what happened then in sort of this ongoing battle over Medicaid expansion. Yeah, well, well you, have, you have to remember uh, that Medicare uh, uh, did not involve the states. Uh, it was a contract with, uh, between the hospital uh, ah, yes, and yes. the Medicare program. Uh, so I, I'm sure if that were the case today, I, 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 I would uh, wager a, a, a rather large bet uh, 
uh, that those hospitals in the state would be more than willing uh, to sign those contracts. In fact, I know for a fact that in many of these states, uh, their uh, uh, hospital association has been lobbying hard uh, to get that Medicaid expansion uh, so uh, that their, the hospitals in their state will not be uh, uh, financially hurt and will be able to uh, uh, keep employees and expand services. Uh, so it's a, di a very different dynamic, and one of the um, one of the ironies uh, of this all is that when it was just a contract between a private entity, a not-for-profit, uh, uh, voluntary institution, and a government program, uh, things worked amazingly smoothly. It's just when states get involved in it and when local politicians get involved in it and then all of these other kinds of issues begin, begin to raise. But for the hospitals, it was just a matter of money. There's a wonderful story I was told by one of the people that we interviewed uh, of going down to a hospital in Texas and uh, and uh, talking with the administrator who told told them basically uh, we we won't desegregate the, desegregate this hospital until hell freezes over uh, get out of here and the um, uh, inspector said okay but if we go you're going to lose about 70 million dollars in federal funding over the next year uh, a week later uh, the uh, inspector gets a call uh, from the board chairman who says, we just fired the administrator. What do we have to do to get the Medicare money? Uh, and that <laughs> yes. was a story that was repeated over and over, you know, that um, uh, there, there's a wonderful golden rule that, that uh, those that have the gold rule. And for the first time uh, with the Medicare program, the federal government discovered that they had that gold and they could use it. Uh, to rule and make sure uh, that people had access to care in every community. Let's finish our conversation, David, by, by staying up to date and even sort of uh, looking ahead perhaps just a little bit. Your book is going to sit on my bookshelf next to Dana Matthews' book that also came out this year called Just Medicine. Wow, and, uh, fantastic. I'm honored. <laughs> and listeners uh, uh, may remember that we talked uh, with Dana about uh, her wonderful book back in... Uh, was episode 43. Um, and Dana, perhaps even thinking about uh, some of the history that you went through, said in her book, quote, during the periods of our history when civil rights laws were effectively used to desegregate healthcare and promote equal access, healthcare disparities improved. Today, however, traditional civil rights laws have become irrelevant in the effort to bring justice to healthcare. Those anti-discrimination laws punish only outright bigotry and the most virulent forms of racism. Uh, now that these forms of overt racism are out of vogue and mostly absent from the healthcare system, uh, the rule of law has been neutralized and no longer controlled. And this is what uh, Dana would call um, uh, sort of the unconscious racism that we see. Now, 
Now, in the final chapter of your book, you write, quote, the healthcare system of the United States as it exists, as it exists today is a peculiar accommodation between its pre-civil rights era formative years and the civil rights revolution, uh, reflecting on both Dana's comment and, and, and how you uh, sort of finish your book. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts about the current state of healthcare and disparities? Well, I, I, I think what, what has happened um, is the same thing that has happened. Uh, I, I mean, the uh, disparities in terms of health care reflect the failure of uh, uh, to uh, reduce uh, uh, schoolies, uh, school segregation and residential segregation. And there's a limit to what a healthcare system can do uh, if they are uh, thrown into a, a basically segregated society. For example, all of the pressure to force the reduction in length of stays through various payment and other incentives to hospitals just people back to uh, their community and to the resources in that community. If you're segregated economically and racially by community, the chances of you having adequate outpatient uh, care uh, in, a, in a minority or low-income uh, community are, uh, are relatively low. And thus, you see, uh, uh, with the readmission rates, uh, uh, from people drawn uh, from those geographic areas are, are substantially higher. Uh, I, I guess my point is, I think that we have gone past the, although I'm sure there's still instances of it, uh, of individual racial racial prejudice and discrimination in the provision of services. It's now much, much more structural. And that makes it in some ways more difficult, but it's in some ways easier to address. You had just have to provide uh, the incentives to re- reduce those st- structural barriers. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to uh, David Barton-Smith. Uh, great fun having you on the show, David. Great. I enjoyed it. Uh, good luck to your, your show. I think you're providing a wonderful service. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where are you? At HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>